This is the Jets-centric podcast, your home for Winnipeg Jets, talk, thoughts, and takes. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Jets-centric podcast. This is episode number 10, double digits. We did it. Uh, in this episode, there is an interview with Murat Atesh of The Athletic. Uh, Chris does interviewing with me lurking in the background a little bit. Um, Chris did a great job of uh, including a lot of the fan questions that you all submitted. Thank you so much for doing that. It, but he included them in his line of questioning. And uh, so... Yeah, hope you're happy with the answers. I think Murat did a great job of answering them. And really, we covered a lot of topics in this. And so it was a lot of fun to, to do. Big thanks to Murat for taking the time to do it with us. So anyhow, that's it. Short intro and enjoy the episode. And welcome back to the Jet Centric Podcast. It's Chris here and I'm here with Murat Atesh. Hello. From The Athletic. I was actually going to ask Marat if he could explain quickly about The Athletic. Uh, what? Because when I say that I'm interviewing you, people are unsure what The Athletic is. So just a quick uh, overview of The Athletic for people that aren't familiar. Uh, it's a subscription sports service where you're getting the deeper dives, the deeper storytelling, the analytic articles. A lot of famous people like Pierre Lebrun or Eric Duhatchik or Corey Pronman or James Myrtle. And you also get me covering the Winnipeg Jets. Um, and we have the freedom to go deeper and tell uh, ideally more compelling stories. My last piece was a 4,000-word state of the franchise Winnipeg Jets piece, and we just have the room to, to explore things as objectively and deeply, I'll use that word again, as possible. Yeah, I'm a subscriber. I got a free T-shirt when I subscribed, so that was fantastic. So uh, you guys can uh, download the app. Uh, this subscription is well worth the price. Uh, there's articles all the time from all over North America. Uh, local stories from everywhere so uh, and you can find Marat on there and on his Twitter of course which we'll get to later I'm sure so we're gonna dive right in I think the question on everyone's mind and I think it needs to be addressed first is uh, where's the Josh Morrissey contract well I guess we're still waiting for it he's saying all the right things as they always do um, and the when big jets are saying the right things as they always do as well uh, in this case Personally, I don't see the consternation. He's under so many years of team control at this point in his uh, at this point in his evolution as a player. Um, something will get done. For me personally, my my pet theory on this is it's not just the difference between a bridge deal and a long term deal because um, we've we've talked about that to death over the course of the summer. But with the possibility of a work stoppage coming up, I think one of the hooks and one of the little turning points on a lot of these guys' contracts is specifically how much cash they can get up front in advance of a possible work stoppage. I'm not saying I know that that's what's happening with Josh Morrissey, but my pet theory is that um, in addition to the fact that he'll want to bet on himself with a bridge contract or something to that effect, the, the biggest issue is probably a bit of financial certainty and just getting a big payday or as big of a payday as he can from that. So for some of the uh, less knowledgeable like me, I've always wondered the difference with the bridge or the long term immediately after the ECL. 
if you bridge, doesn't that mean longer, um, uh, longer time that a player can be with the club? In theory, if you bridge for two and then sign a max, then you get whatever that is, 13 years of team control. Sure, yeah. Um, if you take that bridge, that's exactly it. Yeah, your entry-level contract in most cases, and Morrissey's case would be this, would be a three-year deal if you bridged for two and then signed for the max at eight, assuming the max is still eight when right. that happens, because that could change depending on if there's a CBA renegotiation. Um, that would add up to more control uh, for the team, and I think uh, that's a, a reason why they can be seen as team-friendly. Every once in a while, depending on the exact context, a player might bridge or aim for the bridge just to minimize the amount of time he's in the city because then he follows that up with a short-term deal. Um, ideally, in Morrissey's case, if they do go that route, it's two and then eight or something to that effect because he's such a linchpin and there's really nobody coming after him other than Sami Niku, who's a probable but not a definite on left defense and uh, behind them, there's not really that much right now. So then that would lead us to... <laughs> the his defensive part, partner in uh, Jacob Truba. What do you see? What's I know that that's crystal ball, and so I apologize because that's it is speculation more so. But what do you what do you see? Um, I wonder personally because of how well uh, you know he seems to get along with everybody and how articulate and how well spoken, how he does say all of the right things, and how Kurt Overhart does say all of the right things. I also carry the pet theory around that uh, if the Jets had a whopping amount of cash for him in terms of something. Uh, in terms of lockout protection or work stoppage pr protection. I, I don't think that any bridges are burnt between the, the two parties, uh, but I, I do think all of the, the evidence that we have now, um, the, the two-year deal, now this one-year deal and things like that, it's precarious as like as all heck for sure. And, and I think if I had to make a guess, he's not in Winnipeg for a particularly long time, which is a shame because of the age that he is, the talent that he is, the driver he is at even strength. The fact that Bufflin's getting older, the fact that Myers is not the even-strength defenseman that either of those two men are. Um, in a perfect world, you run Truba and Morrissey for the next eight years, uh, and all of a sudden you're running the risk of uh, a right side that's depleted with, without Truba a year from now, without Myers a year from now, depending on what they do there, and then an aging Bufflin. Um, it's a swing point, it's a bit of a hinge, and it could go from amazing to awful uh, within 365 days. Uh, well, I wasn't... <laughs> so that brings up a Tyler Myers question because you're looking at potentially almost out of necessity having to, to re-up him, right? Uh, if if you're the Jets. I, 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 you could trade, conceivably trade Truba one for one, right? And get somebody maybe older or something like that, but replace him, conceivably. Mm -hmm. um, but that still involves now... Uh, Myers probably extension or something like that. What do you see happening with Myers? Because he's UFA after this season. That's correct. Yeah. So I think that Winnipeg likes Myers enough in terms of his disposition and his, his, uh, his presence in the room that, that there would, they would be open to the extend Myers to cover your loss of Truba sort of solution. Um, and I think that so far though, they, they've also played, his ice time almost exactly right. I was looking at the right side um, ice time not too long ago, and I, and I think that they did it well. Um, you have Bufflin and Truba, the distinct even strength leaders in ice time uh, on the right side, and that's what you want because they're the ones who can defend and play a two-way game, and Myers is simply not a defender on their level. He'll get lost in situations that they can handle. Um, but Myers does get the power play time, um, second uh, most to Bufflin as well. 
Uh, Chuba's numbers have never been excellent on the power play. I believe they could be good, but they've never been excellent, so the case isn't there that you have to take that time from Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Buffalo needs a break somewhere because he's playing so much, and he doesn't PK as much as the other two players do. And I thought that that was the perfect balance of the particular strengths they have. Um, I also think that Tucker Pullman's a very good NHL defender, and I'm tempted to overrate him because I think he's quite good and tempted to under... Uh, pardon me. I'm concerned about his age, is I guess what I'm trying to trying to say as well. I think he's excellent for this stage in his development, but I don't want to get too carried away from him because he's already in his mid-20s. Right, so I was going to go a different direction, but we can continue down the D-pair kind of thing. So you have a Poolman, um, you still have Sherat Morrow, and then, of course, the wild card, I think, is, is Sami Niku. For me, I see, and again, I'm not going to force-feed you anything, but for me, I see my, our, uh, Truba and Morrissey. I would, if I were coaching, and we all know how that stuff goes, how people think <laughs> about fans and all that kind of stuff, I would go the same as we did a year ago, or I guess it's two now, and go, okay, Nico, you're playing with Bufflin, right? Because that's what Bufflin wants. Uh, Bufflin's the uh, basically alternate captain of the team, right? He kind of runs things in the dressing room, it sounds like. And then you do whatever the combo is, if it's, Sherratt and Myers, Pullman, Myers, anything like that. But I think that's a great scenario for me. I have written to the effect that that is what what I see, if not immediately. I think Niku is at the stage in his career in terms of the massive season that he just put up. And you sort of compare that NHL equivalency at the age that he hit it compared to other players that were in the AHL at that similar age. And he comes in in a very, very good group. 13 out of 19 seasons, or 13 out of 19 players, uh, went on to very successful NHL careers at a pretty high point per game, too, around about half a point per game. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of offensive success there. Uh, and then also you look at some of the work by Namita Nandakumar, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and then Tyler Dello as well, looking at aging curves of defensemen from different angles. That 21, 22-year-old age is where you got to be hitting in terms of if he makes the NHL in this particular season, he'll be on pace to be a top four defenseman. If he can't quite crack it, and it's because of ability, he we might be looking at worry for him. I think he's of the ability, and I think he's of the success thus far to be an excellent player going forward. I think Dustin Bufflin's the perfect mentor. He's got that history, mm-hmm. doesn't he? He can play and carry just about anybody. He's done it with a lot of players of different abilities uh, throughout the last few years. So does that mean that AHL, like, would that be a regression for Niku if he played there for for the Moose next year? It depends what he does because like he'd be their number one guy. Sorry, mm-hmm. right? Is that right? Um, in terms, certainly in terms of offense, I think there's still some credibility to the argument that uh, that he is learning to handle the size and, and and that type of defend defending. But I I think that he's further along than maybe some of the critics that I've read would would say on that particular front. Um, if he plays in the AHL and it's because he flat out was unable to demonstrate that he was better than the Moros and Charats and things of the and, and Kulikovs of the world, and he simply didn't do anything that um, in camp and didn't do anything the first half of his AHL season to 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 spark the mind in in that sort of way, that would be a disappointment. If he goes to the AHL and crushes it, and it's just Winnipeg's dealer's choice, and they choose to go with their players that they have on one-way contracts without um, uh, without waiver exemptions, uh, then it's then he'll have been pushed out by contract. And as long as he kills it at the level that he plays, I, I won't be panicking quite yet. 
And do you think that there's some of um, the coaching style or or system style that affects whether he makes the team or not too? Do you th- um, I'm more inclined. I, I often believe that contracts dictate a lot of this stuff and the fact that um, you would have to actually submit a Moro or a Charada or a Kulikov to waivers uh, to, to make room for him, uh, to make room for Sami Niku, especially assuming that you're keeping Tucker Pullman, uh, who still maintains his waiver exempt status. Anyhow, um, I think contracts would be the most likely dictating point. Um, when Niku was called up last season and, and played a, a reasonably solid game, a lot of offense on both sides of the ice with Dustin Bufflin, I think that they showed that they're willing to, to roll with, with that particular style, especially partner to a guy like Bufflin who they trust so much. Right. And I think that's a good, a good point is the, is the Bufflin side of it. Right. Um, uh, moving on. Um, how about the backup goaltender situation? Uh, <laughs> it's not good enough. Okay. So does, the, so we're going to probably, I think we would all be expecting a PTO any time soon or something different. Do you think? My read on this, sincerely, is that the Winnipeg Jets believe that Laurent Brossois is worth a shot at the backup goaltending position and that um, they're very pleased that he's working out with Adam Frensley and Connor Hellebuck, and there's quite a lot of camaraderie there. Um, I've talked to some goaltending consultant-type folk who believe that the situation in Edmonton was just not to, not suitable for, for Brossois and the, amount, the, the type of defense in front of him and the sort of chaos being thrown into, into that mix. I do see that argument to some extent, but then I look at his AHL numbers. They're not clearly ahead of a guy like Eric Comrie even, and I don't consider that a very good projection for a, a strong NHL career. A year ago, with Mason and Hellebuck and Hutchinson, the Winnipeg Jets were in much better position in that than they are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hellebuck, I think, is more of a known quantity, and I do believe he's a good bet to have a strong year. But after him, Brassois is a question mark, and if anything happens to Connor Hellebuck, this season could go south in an awful hurry. So that brings up a question that was sort of a, a listener question, kind of, um, Connor Hellebuck. A huge, huge year, uh, probably the MVP of our team, right? Uh, the reason why we made a jump. It's the moment we've all been waiting for, a star goaltender. In 30 years of NHL hockey, Winnipeg has never had a star goalie. We've had a couple of good seasons from a couple of guys. Finally had it. I think everybody... Loves the contract. Everybody's happy he's going to be here. What are the chances that he has the same sort of season, a regression? I know, I believe his PK save percentage was huge this year, and that made a difference. What do you see happening? Is is it is it a cause? Never mind the backup goalie situation. Is a cause for uh, concern? Be worried about Connor Hellebuck specifically because he did have a, an absolutely monstrous year and. The sorts of things that I look at and trying to piece that out are what are his long term what is his long term track record relative to the league he played in and relative to the age he was. And as a matter of fact, when I look at that, his prior NHL season, the one he struggled in, was the only time he wasn't exceptional for the level that he played at. Right. So I think that that is a good sign that Hallibuck is the real deal. Um, he excelled at every level in every season except for that one. Uh, is how I perceive it when I look at the save percentages. When you dive deeper, even strength is the most repeatable save percentage. And he's done kind of above average by that. Like, he would be in the top half of NHL goaltenders mm-hmm. for that thus far. Um, when you get to the PK save percentage, I think that there's pretty good evidence that this, the shot volume that Winnipeg gives up on the penalty kill, like, it's historic. When I looked at that in a, in a deep format right. at the Athletic... Um, 
it is in like the the worst percent uh, just about in terms of the amounts of shots per hour um, and shot attempts per hour and things like that that the PK gives up. So I think that there's compelling evidence, especially from the types of places that some of these shots come from on the PK that, that Hellbuck was fortunate last year. However, then you talk from the other side of things, um, he'll tell you that he saw pucks more often than he did the previous season. Uh, he'll tell you as well that the types of passes that instead of being cross-seam with the Jets genuinely do prevent more cross-seam passes on the PK than most other teams. Um, he seems to think he can stop those one-timers from in close as long as they're like at the top of the circle and not coming across his crease. So I think in the end, um, looking at those different factors and also looking at, um, at uh, expected save percentage and things like this, I will sum all of this up and say that I don't think that he's a very good bet to be a Vezina Trophy finalist every single season, but I do think he's a good bet to be in the top half of NHL starters. Um, and goaltending fluctuates so mm -hmm. much that over the course of six years, he could have four stellar ones, two bad ones, and still be worth the gamble. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we've seen that recently, right? Jonathan Quick, Carey Price have had bad seasons, bounce backs, and, and all those kinds of things. So I think you have to have that confidence like you said, especially given his track record, I think anyway, and I agree you, you've put the work in to see that. So, so we could move maybe, um, to the forwards. Um, I had a couple people mention Veselainen. Um, he's, I guess the, the big ticket to see in the preseason, I would guess. I don't know how accurate there was a report last week that his new contract has a KHL out. Um, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Uh, I believe it to be. I think I saw it from sources that I thought were reputable. Okay. So that makes us wonder what, what, what the forecast is. I, I'll i let you go with uh, with what you see there. I project that he'll be a minor league player for the most part of this season. And um, the reason that I say that is because of the amount of players who are simply, like who would have to be exposed to waivers that Winnipeg already has at forward including guys like Nick Vitan, Marco Dano, players like this. Veselainen's season in, in the SM Liga in, in Finland was excellent, and he is an exciting prospect. And to put up the, the points per game that he did at the age of 19, it projects very well. Um, I was looking at uh, a heavily binned uh, uh, research project by Byron Bader out of Calgary that looks at the NHL equivalency of players at certain ages and how likely they are to go on and have an NHL career. Veselin is looking at something like 80% chance of NHL career already based on the amount of offense he's put up so far based on that one research study. And that's kind of 50-50 between whether he's an NHL regular in terms of just a middle six guy playing the 200 games at least in, in his career or um, what Bader was calling a star player, at least 0.7 points per game. So a reasonable offensive contribution over the course of his career. So all of this is to say, I believe he's a good prospect, and I believe he's going to have an NHL career, and I'm going to, I believe he's going to do it in an offensive role. He has the tools for it. Um, this particular season, I don't see the room, and I think that there are guys a little bit further along in their career with maybe lo lower ceilings, like a Marco Dano or a, like, a, like a Nick Vitan, who are in better spots contractually, who are a little bit more experienced, who have demonstrated a little bit more NHL success already, that seem like better bets for the short term as well. Um, I think with Winnipeg's cap situation as it's going to, like, it's already sort of hitting the fan. There have already been cap casualties in Mason and Armia and Paul Stasny, if you want to consider him that one as well. 
Um, one extra little bit of managing the cap for Winnipeg would be to have Veselainen come in next year and um, and start his three-year ELC at that moment. So that brings up, which is something I was going to wait a little bit till later, but it 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 fits in so well. Um, and this was a listener question is a, is a Blake Wheeler <laughs> question. Mm. And that's something that we've talked about on the podcast already. Um, you're in a position here where you've got an elite player, maybe a top 10 player in the NHL, who's going to need a new contract. You're a draft and development team, as I mean, all teams are, but specifically the Jets pride themselves on that. You maybe have a Vaselinen who, when he was drafted that night, Blake Wheeler was mentioned in the same sentence as him, that he could be a, a replacement or a similar type player. Cap's an issue. What are we doing with, you know, like I say, a top 10 player in the NHL? So my mind goes in two different directions. The first is what's likely to happen. And right. I, I think that Blake Wheeler, based on the career that he's had and continues to have um, with a career 91-point season last, last year and the amount of respect he has in that room and, like, I'm always skeptical when I hear about journalists talk about room sort of thing. But in the case of Blake Wheeler, when I see the, the sort of deference that he gets in that place, I, I, I genuinely believe that they all, like to a man, will look up to him um, for whatever that's worth. I think that the cachet that he has, the career he's put together... It's worth it when the player's really good, in my opinion. <laughs> that <laughs> that's makes what a I was difference. trying to talk around. That, yeah, yeah, exactly right. He's that's right. an excellent player, and, and really that's that's the what matters at the end of the day. Um, so... I think that he has earned the right to sort of write that check or to, to sort of dictate right. what his career looks like at this point. And the question is what's best for the Jets long term. And that's where it gets a, a little bit more interesting because his career year came on the power play. His even strength performance kind of rolled in place. And there's some arguments that it even like decreased a tiny bit as well. Um, I'm not as quick to declare Blake Wheeler a, a spent even strength force because it was still excellent. And because I can look at that one month where he was centering Connor and Line, right. a rookie and a sophomore um, who aren't necessarily possession drivers, and I can sort of, you know, I, I can look at that and say that um, that was an impressive feat as opposed to, to a disappointing one. Playing out of position yeah, as well. Yeah, that's, like, I can't imagine too many players in too many situations where that would work nearly as well as sure. it did. Um, so... Do you believe that that power play is going to continue to hum at that rate? Do you believe that his even strength performance is going to continue? Because I saw an interesting post from Sean Turney today that was looking at goals above replacement versus age in the NHL and the cliff that most players fall off in their early 30s, which is exactly where he is. He's not Joe Thornton. He's not going to sign the one-year deal or the two-year deal or like inch his way forward. Because he's got 50 or $60 million coming to him, right? <laughs> Well, quite or, or some, something in that neighborhood, right? Yeah, if he was an unrestricted as a UFA, today, like absolutely, you'd be looking at you know eight or nine million for that type of production. Um, I think where this all sort of like where this overlaps and the Venn diagram sort of um, like fits is that it makes sense to me that the Winnipeg Jets will will aim for a four to five year type deal for substantial money and try to work around it because I believe that they value him that highly as a mm -hmm. person and as a player. Um, for me, I see the argument that it, with the cap crunch being what it is, you might be forced to move on from that. But then I also see uh, far more inefficient contracts when you have a Myers or when you have a Kulikov and when you 
um, if you're going to look at Perot uh, as a possible, like in a similar age bracket, declining from less of an offensively elite perspective as well. Uh, and then Brian Little, who we're also right. like, who's a very, I think we're going to talk about Brian Little an awful lot this season for sure. Uh, good reasons or not. So I think uh, Blake Wheeler, even if you're at risk of overpaying for an older player, he's the sort of person that you, that you sort, you, you try to work around and try to include and then, and then cut off the chat from there. And I think a guy like him, um, I I'm liking him, even though he's 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 much better than uh, Shane Don ever was. He reminds me of him in the way that he got better as his career went on. Shane did. He didn't start at an early age at an 18, 19, the same as Wheeler didn't start at 18, 19. He had those extra years, and Shane Don aged really well. I think Wheeler is is seeming to, and Shane ended up dropping in the lineup, no problem. And, and playing in a third line role. And when you can play five on five, like you say, if you play five on five, well, why not? You know, and so maybe in the future that is what happens because where are you going to put all these guys? And so it, that's, I, I guess I'm, I tend to agree with what you're saying that a long-term, yeah. or a midterm contract is probably what they're going to do, but it, it might not be a big problem. Sure. It, it could, it could be, I mean, easier said than done for us uh, or for like, for this conceptualization that we're that we're putting together, it could be easier for us to say that than it is. Like he could, in fact, fall off. But I, I, I tend to agree with you there that he'd be able to play further down the lineup. He might be too expensive for that at some point. But uh, he's not the player you get rid of first if you're looking for low hanging fruit and okay, that's a good way to say it. Sure. So do you, but is that stuff going to happen? This is where we've. I, I, this sounds like a negative thing. It's not meant to be negative, but this is where we've seen some of the deficiency, I think, in, in the upper management is, while the Brian Little contract might be questionable, um, at the time it wasn't, but being able to make a big move. And, and the Mason thing was great that they ended, that got rid of that contract. But you're talking about, like you said, a Perot, Little, Myers, Kulikov, to free up some salary space, that's a lot easier, hopefully, than trading an Ehlers right? Or a Connor on his contract or something like that, where that's going to be really hard to swallow. Do you see those moves, those moves happening? Um, I, I, I've kind of been thrown into this most deeply in the last year. And I found, uh, that management has generally been able to do what, what they've hoped for. And by that, I mean, Paul Stasny, they pulled out of a hat. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's sustainable because I think that that was such a unique situation but the idea that they were willing to pay when the time came to pay and sort of become a cap team with with a team that was genuinely worthy of the playoff run, I thought that that was the right move for them, was to, sure. to use the cap space that they had at that time. And that they're willing to make that difficult decision to part with... Uh, like I, I, Mason didn't have an incredible year, but Joel Armia is a non-trivial asset to be giving up to, to clear up cap space to, to partner with it. Uh, I, I think that that shows at least a willingness to play ball in those sorts of ways. Uh, so my short-term view of this is that they've done all of the right things. You just have to rewind a little bit before I started writing for the Athletic when that Brian Little's deal gets signed, and that's going to be the biggest question mark. And if you know this season when he has a few good games together, everybody's going to be saying, "Oh, he's worth it. See, he's still quite good." And then he has a few bad games, and we're going to be talking mm -hmm. about how overpriced and how how long-term that that deal is. And um, I think that the concerns about loyalty towards those long-term troopers or, or or what have you will be warranted as long as we're talking, we're having this conversation. Like as long as um, 
as long as the Jets are a good team, which they project to be, those little percentage things that make them slightly more efficient or slightly better are going to be of like the most paramount importance. Yeah, I think I remember uh, I was anti the little signing, and this is just for my own to get it out there, was my only kind of qualification for that was if they win a cup or make a final with him playing second or third center, then it's worth it. That was sort of my, like, who cares? If you get it right, and, and if you pay him for another three years after you win a cup, oh, well, he helped you win the cup. So that's sort of how I saw that. It's kind of like one of those necessary evils. I, again, I firmly believe that they they dropped the ball because they had Russell Vick, and that would have just been take out little, put in Russell Vick, and let's let's move on. But anyway, that's just, that's just me. You mentioned it um, earlier about some of the contracts we have on forward uh, with we have some guys that can't aren't aren't waiver exempt anymore. Do you see anybody coming into camp, um, signing to shore up for depth? Do you see a Brendan Lemieux, uh, who last year was a huge topic of conversation from the Jets in um, in training camp? Every time Shovel Day off spoke, he brought up Brendan Lemieux's name every single time. He said, "We've got guys like Connor Roslovic Lemieux." He said it countless times. Where do you see the forward sort of situation, broad, broad kind of look? You touched yeah. on it already, but... I think that if there are threats to the guys who all uh, are no longer waiver exempt, like I, I think that Patan and, and Dano have made the team and will have opportunity strictly by where they are in their careers and the, and the nature of their contract, which will uh, will likely pay more impressive dividends because of the amount of skill on the, that they'll get to play with and perhaps that they've had the opportunity to before. So that's what I think will happen. But if somebody's going to come and threaten that, uh, I think Brendan Lemieux is first in line because he does have that gritty element to his game. He does have the uh, appreciation of, of the coaching and the and the fan base to a certain degree, depending on the perspective. They um, And if you're looking at that grit-type role, that 11th-hour Matt Hendricks signing, I don't think you need to find it from outside of the... Um, outside of the roster in Winnipeg this 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 particular year because Lemieux did go and have a reasonably successful mm-hmm. AHL offensive season. I think there's still concerns about his discipline and uh, the amount of penalty minutes he takes and the degree to which that helps or doesn't help a team. Um, but I believe that if you were to pluck him in or put him in on the fourth line right now, he would do he would play that role with more offensive ability and maybe more of an impact than a guy like Matt Hendricks did. Sure. Uh, I still don't think that that's the ideal situation because I think that there's more skilled and more talented players ahead of him. But I think that they'd probably look long and hard at it, and I don't think it would be a catastrophe. I think it would just, uh, because I prioritize skill, I think that uh, if he's taking ice time away from a Patan or a, or, a, or even a Dano, I think that that would probably be an error. You know? Right. Um, similarly, Mason Appleton did an amazing, has made amazing leaps each and every year. Um Nobody's come from as far back as him and improved as much every single season, year over year, as he has. And he's more of a utility knife, seems to be able to do a little bit of everything. I, I could see him as a viable bottom six option. I'm not projecting him into the top six because he scored a lot of points in the AHL. I think he's a bit old for that level of production. Um, and then, of course, Veselainen is the other is the other one. I think he has the... I think he has the same offensive game as those two, but he's three years younger. Sure. If I've got three years right, but he's definitely a few years younger and has a much higher ceiling and a much more game-breaking ability should he get onto the second power play unit or something like this. So the options are decent. 
the, they couldn't go terribly wrong with any of those guys, but I think the best players that they have are on one are, are, on, are not waiver exempt. I think contracts will sort of choose who those 13 forwards are. And so do you, how do you see the center position breaking down? Do you see a uh, third line Lowry for three quarters of the season again, and then dropping him uh, come playoff time, which I think, again, we've talked about on the podcast before you're not probably winning a Stanley cup with Adam Lowry as your third line center. But if he's your fourth line center, you're probably one of the best teams in the NHL. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see a cop, a, a, a Patan, a Roslovic, a little dropping to third and a Roslovic playing? You know what I mean? Um, not, without going through every single line, how do you see the center position breaking down this year? Uh, Mark Scheifele is an answer for any question that you need. That's not a question. So we got number one right. taken care of. Uh, number two... A decent one, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, number two, the question is when is Jack Roslovic going to take Brian Little's job? And I don't think it's this season. I, I think Little has a lot more to give yet than what we've seen. Uh, last season was his lowest points per game since he was an Atlanta Thrasher, and that certainly would be disappointing uh, for him. I think that if you divide his season up into Little with Ehlers and Line and Little with Ehlers and, and Matthew Perot, there's a massive difference in terms of possession and points per game. Uh, there were a few games that Little played alongside Wheeler, and Little looked once again like the Little of old. Um, I don't think Little can drive a line with two talented, but not necessarily good puck recovery, not necessarily good puck possession players, like amazing explosive players and that Ehlers and Line are. But I don't think that that's the role that, that Brian Little is capable of, of carrying um, carrying a line. And I don't think Roslovic is there quite yet either. So I think the solution there is a, is a reorganization of the forwards more so um, than, than one of those two players being the answer. But I'm going to also, before I wrap that up, disagree with you. And I think Adam Lowry could be a Stanley Cup winning third line center. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I rate his puck possession quite, quite good. Okay. So then in your in your scenario, that means that Ehlers or Line or Wheeler or Connor has to play third line. Mm-hmm. I've explored this a little bit. And I know uh, I've upset members of Jet Centric before. Uh, I put players on their off wing a little bit. Uh, I, I, I've bothered AJ specifically a time or two with my line combinations. However, um, I, and I'm just kidding around when I say that, but the, my, uh, my, my thoughts on this are that Kyle Connor at this point in his career is a lethal offensive player, but not, uh, not a play driver. And I think that he's made absolute hay with a good opportunity on the first line. And I think there's genuine chemistry between him uh, Wheeler and Shifley, but I don't think that he has that should have that spot locked up in stone. Mm-hmm. Um, I have time for a third line that that combines Roslovic and Connor to make room for a top six. Um, that is a different combination of uh, of the guys that we just mentioned, um, and I have room for Line on his off wing as well, playing with. Uh, Playing with Shifley and uh, and Wheeler possibly as well right. if, if need be, uh, so I think for me I'm concerned about that little Ehlers line A line that they've been so stubborn with and faithful to, and then Stastny between the two of them as well. Um, I, I think that that is a source where they're going to need to rearrange things, sure. and some of the tried and true lines that we've seen are going to have to uh, be challenged uh, to to address it. 
um, because there's no Paul Stasny waiting in the wings to right. take that spot. So I guess I'll qualify the Lowry thing with saying with this group, because then it means your fourth line looks a lot different than your fourth line looks with Adam Lowry, Kopp, and Tanev being such a strong line. Um, I, that's more what I mean. I, because if he goes to your third line, that's fine. So if him, Perot, whatever, right? But then all of a sudden, what does your fourth line look like? Is that a Kopp, Dano, Tanev line? I don't know if that's a strong enough fourth line to win a Stanley Cup, I guess is more the point is if he's playing on your fourth line, that means you've got a top nine. That is a knockout and your fourth line is awesome. I guess that's more, more what I mean. That's more specific to what I'm trying to say. And like, you know, I sincerely believe that the Jets forwards that they ran last year in the playoffs, once they got Pearl back were cup caliber, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I do think that they have the depth on that side of things for sure. And that was exactly like you're sort of presenting it there yeah, too. Yeah, that's more what I mean. Not trying to, really, honestly, not trying to poo-poo what Lowry did last year. Because hey. he did have a great season. I, I can go the other way with that too and say that we only have half a season of a partially injured Adam Lowry to, to bank on as well. I think he's the goods in that particular role, but he's only done it for about uh, 50 games of his career. And before that wasn't the, the driver that he became last year either. So there are question marks with him for sure, as, as high as I am on him. Well, that's interesting because I mean that's it's not a wild card in in the sense that it that we don't know what we're getting or whatever because I mean I think overall maybe we know what we're getting with Adam Lowry but again it makes it makes that bottom six for me changes a lot of things in my opinion you can put any of eight guys in the top six right maybe even nine if like maybe Patan could play there you know what I mean maybe there's nine guys that can play in the top six but the bottom six really is dependent on. Roslovic playing third line center, whatever. I I guess I'm really interested the first day of camp to see what they do. The first, who they roll out the first 12. And, uh, and how quickly I, plans go awry too. Like, you know, you, Perot was scheduled to start the year on the top line, got hurt, Connor came up and hey, he was ready. Yeah. <laughs> well, is he? <laughs> is he ready? Are we still waiting to see? <laughs> the, the issue... I think part of the issue with the moving the Lowry up to the third line is the way that he kind of was part of carrying Tanev. It's AJ here, by the way. Um, carrying Tanev. So then where Tanev fits in if he's in your top 12 looks a lot different. And it's kind of you don't really want him necessarily away from Lowry because I think Lowry is what made Tanev as good as he was. So if he's on the third line, then you're like, Okay, so someone else is not carrying Tanev the way that he did. And on top of that, then you're also not going to put Tanev on the third line, right? Because then you're bumping, like, all the players you guys mentioned, Roslovic and Perot, like, all these players you're going to knock out to move him up just to keep him with Lowry. It doesn't make sense. So there's another strong argument for why Lowry should, would be better on the fourth line or Tanev not in the lineup because the way that I rate the players, I'd have Dano and Patan ahead of him. And right now, Tanev would, or, yeah, Dano and Patan, yeah. And then Tanev would be my 13th forward, so... Then it's a non-issue where Lowry goes in, as far as I'm concerned. But that's anyway. not how the organization sees it. I understand. <laughs> I know that. I know, I know that's know. not how they yeah. see it, but that's how I see it. Yeah. It actually reminds me in a very different part of the roster of the old like, do you play Crosby and Malkin together or apart sort of debate? Yeah. Uh, and then the sort of the studies that folks and we're gonna have to look this up because I can't remember who I read it from first, um, who studied the hockey as a weak link or as a strong link game. And basically found that it's more important to have the best player on the ice than it is to not have the worst player on the ice. Uh, so um, a few layers from that, basically confirming that there is evidence that splitting up Crosby and Malkin would be more effective in most cases than 
putting then loading all your talents on up on one line. And the idea is that a good enough player, or most commonly, because not everybody's Crosby or Malkin, a good enough pairing of players can easily carry a third passenger type of just about any puck possession or skill level ability. So I think that's part of why Crosby can carry um, just about anybody to extreme offensive su- success on the on the top line in Pittsburgh. Um, I also think that Adam Lowry and Andrew Kopp can carry just about any level of possession player on the on their opposite wing uh, to uh, to to good possession numbers as well because they're so smart and they're so sharp about it. Uh, I can't count the amount of times that Kopp specifically made just lovely soft aerial chip passes that Tanev could skate onto that. You know, I don't think other teammates are using Tanev in that sort of same way, that one specific strength he's so excellent with to generate possession either. So I think that there's some things you can point to as to why that line works the way that it does and kind of to AJ's point why Tanev's probably not nearly that effective with uh, another group of players too. Uh, I think that there's a lot of evidence for it. So because you mentioned splitting up Crosby and and Melkin as being like a good idea, I'm curious why uh, your lineups usually include Shifley and Wheeler on the same line. Would that not be like two drivers that you'd want to kind of push and make other lines better too. And I'm just curious where your consideration was that, because I know that's what they did most of the season. Like you said, they had Connor up there and uh, I guess what you said, pro started the season on that top line with them. I believe that yeah. And then, but then, yeah. then you even mentioned that you wouldn't mind seeing lining on his off wing playing, playing up there as well. And so I'm curious, is there any scenario where, um, not what you'd like to see, but where you think maybe the team, like the, specifically Maurice, would split that up and kind of split up those drivers to get someone else, especially because you also mentioned Ehlers and Line 8 not be- and Connor not being drivers. Now you're kind of losing all these drivers of play, the, puck, uh, um, uh, the go-get-em guys, right? And so you got Shifley, Wheeler, Perot uh, that can do that. So in, right away in my mind, I'm thinking probably split up those three that's they're all on different lines those three guys right away as as a starting point I'm just curious if you see that translating at all with the Jets being effective or if Maurice would even consider that I think that Winnipeg's well positioned to try that sort of thing because like you say there are players who can play it kind of any way that you want you know there's a few uh, players that are excellent at, at, at turning pucks over on the boards and things like that Matthew Pro being a classic example Wheeler's very good at it um, Shifley's good at it as well. Like I see where you're going with that for sure. When I usually plot lines out, I think of Paul Maurice's cardinal rules and the players' cardinal rules, and I think that the only one that is set in stone appears to be Shifley and Wheeler alongside each other. I think that there's, because of the fact that they can uh, each drive a line, in my opinion, um, in, and when I say drive a line, I mean in terms of puck possession, um, and they're also both good at offense as well. So that combination of things, the fact that they can carry the play and have the offensive talent in, in, in the same package. I think that there's evidence that you could build a more effective Winnipeg Jets lineup if you did split the two of them apart at even strength. But I just don't see that happening. And I see that, and I think that they're good enough together that we're not going to look at that awful slump that makes somebody consider something that they weren't already going to, to do. I think they're so happy with each other, Shifley and, and Wheeler, in terms of the partnership that they have. I think the coaching staff is happy with them as well. And uh, Mark Shifley may be the long-term captain of this team too. So every little bit of overlap there, I just, my line combinations always begin and end with that, that cardinal rule of Jets lineup building. And should they change it? And I was in my mind looking at like a, a cop Lowry wheeler line heading into the playoffs at one point, thinking if they needed a tough minutes line that had a little bit of offense too. Um, I'm not as sold on it as I was at the time that I proposed it, but I do see 
options to use Wheeler's strengths and kind of other areas as well. Um, for as long as he's still an even strength driver, I think that you should be exploring options like that. And even to your point about Little, right? Like sort of maybe Wheeler is the answer for Little's bounce back season as they've been partners for so long before. I'm curious if that's... They might have been better together than Shifley and Wheeler, right? Little and Wheeler. I mean, I don't, I don't know about specifically, but they were, when those two were together, like remember like Little Lad Wheeler and all of that stuff, like they were really good together. Yeah. Yeah. So, and <laughs> to, to those few moments that Little and Wheeler played together last season, it looked like they still had it to me. That's just eyes. There's no numbers to back that up. Um, but yeah, I, what AJ just said, I don't know if the microphones picked it up. I bet they yeah, did, but it, yeah. um, the idea that, that Blake Wheeler could be the answer to the Brian Little revival um, holds a lot of weight with me as well, and I think that you could find a lot of balance through four lines if if that is in fact the case, and then that solves uh, just about every forward question that you could possibly have with the Jets, in my opinion. And there really aren't that many. It's a right. good, good group, yes. and they're all capable of something. But sure. uh, if you're looking for ways to pluck more efficiency out of it, uh, that little wheeler combination can be worth returning to for sure. I just quickly remember that there was, a, I believe it was Garrett. I don't know if he wrote it or there's, there is a, uh, a system about how, how important each line is to a team success as well. Like as in your, your, your top line rewards you more than, you know what I mean? Have, uh, having a really good top line is more important than having a really good third line. Mm-hmm. Having a really good third line is m- much more important. You could have a lousy fourth line, blah, 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 blah. Would love to revisit that. I just remembered it. I don't know if you if you're familiar with that that art that not that familiar enough thing. to speak to it. Yeah, it's really cool because it, it all of a sudden puts in perspective the splitting up of guys and all that kind of stuff. And it is, I believe, it's the top two lines are so much more important than the bottom two lines that really a, a team can be successful with, okay. with, with. You know what I mean? With, with pulling up a fourth line. Yeah, the wisdom that I've carry around with me is that the top nine is disproportionately more so than the than that last line. Sure. And uh, the top four is disproportionately more important than that that last pairing as well. And in Winnipeg, the amount of sheltering that they were able to give their third pairing, that one I feel confident in saying that the, the right. top two pairs play a much more important role than that third pairing. Makes sense. But, uh, I'm not yeah. familiar with that. That's study. right. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to come back with our listener questions and then finish off with a uh, maybe season preview prediction type thing at the end. Sounds good. All right. Hey, we're back. So we're going to go to listener questions. I'm sure if you're listening, you've noticed that I have mixed in um, some of the listener questions into uh, our regular conversation because I thought that, that that made a lot of sense. I know my pops asked a question that we... <laughs> that we mentioned and we had a couple other people ask some questions so I worked them in uh, the ones I didn't I think we can get to I think the first one and I think this is a is is a good one we kind of touched on it but I think if we could do more specific would be what's the biggest battle uh, going to be at training camp for a spot again we did touch on it but specifically if you think now if we could get maybe more specific yeah for me uh, the biggest battle comes in the form of Sami Niku versus every left-handed defenseman who isn't named Josh Morrissey uh, because I think that he has a higher ceiling than, than the other three players. He lacks for experience, but he should at this point in his career be able to demonstrate some flashes that, that show his ability above them. And then um, 
the Winnipeg Jets need for grit on their fourth line versus the skilled players that already exist there. And I, I think contracts will dictate some things there. Like I, I, I've said with Dano and Patan being in a really good spot because of their contracts, but there could be some temptation for a Lemieux or an Appleton just because they're a little bit more thought to have a little bit more grit, especially Lemieux. So it will make a lot of people happy because I know there's a good group of us on the on the Twitter.com that love Sammy Niku, and I think we'll get to see him in probably every preseason game, I would assume, him and his hair. And so I think that's <laughs> the flow. That's awesome. I'm, I'm pretty pretty happy about that. So a question, again, we, we kind of touched on it, but a more specific question about upside. And that's a that's a difficult question sometimes. Obviously, you do that. Some of your specialty, I think, is researching those sorts of things, right? Predictiveness and how players are going to be. That's, you've shown us that earlier in the podcast. Somebody asked, who has a better upside, Josh Morrissey or Jacob Truba? And I think that that's a really interesting question. That it is really a wonderful is. question. Yeah, I, I like that question because it's tough. To, to be honest. Um, but I, I started looking at some different ways that I would conceive of trying to answer that question. And one of the things that I think that surprised me, and even though I know it as a fact, but it's one of those things that you think you know, uh, is that they're just a year apart. And Jacob Trouba has been on the Winnipeg Jets forever now, for several yes. years. And Josh Morrissey had his big coming out party last year. So we tend to think of Josh... Morrissey as like the new kid on the block, the guy who's got all of this upside just because he's he's new to the Jets organization. He's actually just a year younger. So I looked at a couple of other things. Offense relative to age at the various different leagues that they played in. Um, at the very beginning, when Truba was playing in the USHL, uh, Morrissey had a slight edge on him there. But as soon as they hit the, the professional leagues, uh, Truba scored more points per game uh, for the level of competition that he's been at. Than, than Morrissey by a, a reasonable amount, actually. Um, and so that was one way that I looked at it. He has made the NHL earlier. He scored a little bit more offense. I rate their defensive game both very, very well. Um, and I don't think that that year at this stage of that career is their career is enough for me to, to, to say that Morrissey simply on potential is going to go uh, above. And I, I think I rate Truba more highly presently. So then I looked into war. And mm-hmm. I know that's been a common topic of the of the summer. Right, that's been huge the last <laughs> couple of weeks, right? It's been a big thing. Yeah, there's a big blow up on the internet about it. As uh, um, Can you just define war quick? Uh, wins above replacement. The idea that there's such thing as a replacement level player that you could pluck off of waivers or sign at any given time that is your baseline of how good um, uh, the next successful player would be. Um, and the amount of contribution to winning or to goals or goal differential above that replacement that each player represents. Um, and there's a few different models for it that are publicly available. Um, I spent some time today on Corsica reading Manny's, uh, I can't remember his last name, I apologize Manny. Um, and then... Eric's? Elk? Yeah. Ah, Manuel Elk. Does yeah. that sound right? Yeah. I hope I got that. We, we found it. Sorry, guys. Um, and, uh, and then I went to EvolvingHockey.com, uh, which is um, the Evolving Wild Twins on Twitter. And I had a, a look at that, uh, that, that model as well. Both of them rate good name. Morrissey and <laughs> Truba's uh, wins above replacement or goals above replacement uh, quite well. Um, I was surprised that there was a little bit of difference. And in a per-minute played basis... Um, they each rated Truba uh, higher than Morrissey over the past few years as well. 
Um, though Morrissey played more games and more minutes last year, so he contributed more to Winnipeg's overall winning. This is a bit of a, of a digression without a, a huge pop, but I try to look at this from a few different angles, and um, at the end of all of it, I, I come away thinking that it's Jacob Truba's spot as not only the better player today, but uh, because they're so close in age, um, and Truba's been performing at the level that he has for so many years, uh, I, I see him as the one with the higher upside as well. Uh, even though Josh Morrissey is a very intelligent player and, and could grow by leaps and bounds every year for all I know. So what you're saying is is if we have those two guys on our D, D for the next 10 years, we should be doing really well is basically what you're saying. Yeah, that's the solution. <laughs> Find a way to lock those guys down. I know Truba's where, where they're at, but I mean, geez. And to talk to them, actually, one of my favorite interviews of the entirety of last season um, was Josh Morrissey. Uh, I, I spoke to him at length a couple of different times and the articulation that, that he gave and telling me about, you know, the day he was drafted, he was thinking about Jacob Truba as a partner. Like he was oh, he was told awesome. and he was aware and he knew who was part of the Jets system and they were projected to be together and he talked about all the different strengths that he thought that Jacob Truba had and the way that they read off of each other. Um, the way that when uh, when Truba's got somebody on the wall, Josh Morrissey's sort of calling traffic and things like that, making decisions and the way that they switch off of each other and then I asked Truba about the same, and Truba's a little bit uh, different personality. I'll give you less words on the topic, but he basically reciprocated the respect. And um, it's everything that you would want in a top pairing, and the only shame and the only risk is that the Winnipeg Jets might not have that top pairing for as long as fans would want them to. Uh, you're wondering why AJ and I are making eyes at each other about that Morrissey, <laughs> because uh, when Ace Burpee was on, he actually said that if he... He would not never be surprised if Josh Morrissey was the captain of the Jets, actually, is what he said. And you saying how much you enjoyed talking to him and how smart he was and all those kinds of things is to hear that from our last, you know, last two guests with any sort of inside information. It's just that that speaks volumes to how important what's happening here as far as locking him up and getting a contract and all that kind of stuff is. Because despite the jokes about locker room guys and how important this and that you don't want assholes on your team. And <laughs> yeah. and so if you have good 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 guys that are good at their sport, that's what you want and that that's a very positive thing to hear is that a guy like Josh Morrissey is a great guy and that's 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 another point in his column. Doesn't mean that I'm not saying that Jacob Truba isn't. I'm just saying that that's awesome to hear that about about Morrissey. I think that's a really cool thing. Anyway, uh, we talked about uh, one of the listener questions was who's more likely to play center this year. I, I don't know if we took an answer, though, for sure on that specifically because we're talking about kind of readjusting lines and whatnot. So if you had to pick between Nick Patan, Jack Roslevic, and Andrew Kopp playing center this year, because that was the specific question. Oh, man. I, I could see compelling reasons for, for any of those three players to get some time at center or some time not at center. I'm going to I'm gonna go with Roslovic because I think that Winnipeg's going to want to know how well that succession plan is working, and they might give him some reps at center. And, do you, and again, just to re-qualify, do you think that's third-line center more than likely? Um, or 2A, 2B? Sure, yeah. In terms of how the... like. In my mind, I, I think like even strength ice time would be how I would quantify that. And yeah, I, I could imagine it being sort of in a third line capacity. 
And depending on what shakes out with Winnipeg's depth and if everybody's healthy, um, I could see it even in a fourth line capacity uh, as well in terms of the fourth most even strike minutes. And, and that would be fine. I think that um, given who Winnipeg has and, and the amount of quality that's on that team, um, I wouldn't look at that placement as, as a disappointment as long as, uh, as long as he showed well in it. So, okay, well, okay. <laughs> it just brings up a funny thing because we have this scenario where we've had really good players play on a fourth line, but they're not playing with proper line mates. I don't think, okay, so here's where maybe some people would say the trolls have been saying for two or three years. You could have, we, we talked about Adam Lowry playing a third line. Even if you played with Kopp and Tanov on your third line. If you rolled a fourth line of Roslevic, Dano, and Patan, let's just put it out there. This is what you, sh- in my opinion, this is what, and not, it's not just my opinion, in a lot of people's opinion, that's what you should do if you're going to do it. But what ends up happening is you put a Jack Roslevic with a Brendan Lemieux and a Brandon Tanov, <laughs> right? And then on your third line, you've got Lowry, Perot, and Patan. Well, just for argument's sake, right? So now you've jumbled everything and you don't give a guy like a Roslevic a chance. And I think that's where some of the worry comes from. Or the other side is some of the excitement that could be with a Dano Roslevic, even with Cop. You know what I mean? Something like that. So that's where you take up or maybe you go to track record, right? Of what the coach does or the or an organization. Yeah, I, I see some track record with the organization playing sort of grittier and less skilled players on those bottom and then the last time I guess when Nick Patan broke into the league and, and played a lot of time with, with gritty players without the sort of skill that conceivably Winnipeg's top 12 or 13 forwards have right now um, I, I guess the story is he played terrifically with skill and, and not right. as as much with without it and you look at that and wonder what could have been and I imagine lots of Jets fans feel that way I think that the uh, the players that they have almost work Winnipeg out of that particular problem just because of who they have um, but in the middle of August when I was throwing out uh, just for conversation's sake I had a Connor Rossovic and Patan line um, that given who else Winnipeg has probably would have played the third or fourth most even strike minutes so that'd be pretty low especially for a guy who scored 31 goals last year mm-hmm. in Kyle Connor and um, these things are so fun to think of especially when that line has track record and like at excelling even uh, with a moose and um, and I see AJ wants to grab the mic. Oh, I just I just wanted to say something because you talk about the the trolls, Chris. And uh, I think to be fair, and I've tried to do this more and more, some of the things that we've also loved about the team, like for people like myself and uh, Chris, you can speak for yourself, but who have been been more critical of the coach and the usage. Also, some of the things that we've loved the most have also been decided by this coach. Like for me, I love the idea of having Patan centering with uh, Connor and and Wheeler because I want to move Shifley down to help out other lines and spread the talent around a bit more. I love that idea. Tony was the one that sort of introduced me to to that idea of uh, of specifically that and the same coach that you might pull your hair out and go, ah, oh, why is Dano in the press box again, is also the same one that finally did put Truba and Morrissey and saw that together, right? And also the same one that did give certain guys chance and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, sometimes to, to a fault with some things that I don't always like, but to give credit where it's due, he's also been the one that's put some of those lineups that for almost anybody, even if we don't, me and Chris can disagree on, line a or something or the first line but he might like it i might not but at a different time i might have liked it and he didn't and so the he's kind of given us everything that we've wanted probably at some point uh it's just now as a fan base 
And as an organization, like you're saying, there's so much depth and strength there. Uh, it'd be nice if we could just find whatever the best way is to maximize that, not just coach's preference. Because so much of, I think, people's ideas of what the team should do is driven by, their, their own narrative is driven by what one man or one coaching uh, group does, right? And so then it's like, Dan was in the press box, so now half the fan base thinks that he sucks. It's like, no, no, that was, you know, one coach or one person who thought he didn't fit the role. And so now he's a throwaway in a lot of people's minds. And you go, well, no, no, let's think about this. Like, what, what is the best thing? And uh, so I had a question that was sort of related to that. And you did touch on it a bit earlier when we were just talking about the line combinations. But what is probably, uh, this is a roundabout way of getting to it, but um, what is the best way to form lines like if you have a line one and it's you know rated at 100 percent, whatever that's your best line right that's kind of the way it was always done and line two is 80 percent. if you kind of mix and match that a little bit could you get uh 93 and 93 balance that talent which would be more than the 180 you'd get otherwise like how can you maximize that and you did speak to that with the the crosby melkin example earlier and i'm curious now going into the season, what what does that look like? How what is the best maximized lineup? Literally, how who's not who's not in those thirteen forwards? Um, anyway, that's sorry, long 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 question. That's it. How do you, how do we maximize that talent? What's the best best lineup? Literally, yeah, I, I understand the question for sure. In that it's you know, uh, you get to the point where it's like yeah, it's fine that you have good players on a hockey team, and now it's how do you get that that X percent out of it? How do you get that next level of performance out of it? Um, I, I, other than strong league, strong link, weak link things, um, I don't know that I've read something that convinces me systemically that there is, there is sort of like a mathematical answer that applies to every situation in this one. And they might be out there and I'm not familiar with it. Like when I think about that question, I, I think that there's probably enough noise between specific human beings and specific chemistry between uh, between different groups of players that, that do make it hard. And I'll use Kyle Connor as an example of that. And like I've told you before, I've, I've created lineups just for conversation's sake where he's on the third or fourth line, which sounds absurd um, mm-hmm. because of the amount of goals that he scored. I genuinely believe that he has chemistry, this ineffable thing with Wheeler and Shifley. And I think that uh, his timing at the top of the zone, his patience with the puck. I think that there are things about Kyle Connor that work well in that spot. I also think that having two thirds of the guys on a line being excellent five on five drivers mean a lot of people could succeed in at least a way in that spot. So what about a Nick Patan who, uh, who hasn't gotten that type of opportunity necessarily, who might have the offensive ability? What about a Jack Rossovic? What about even Patrick Laine on his off winger, Nick Ehlers and things like this? And, I mean, I don't know that I could show you something on a spreadsheet or in like something that I've read that answers that question exactly. And in this particular case, I just have to go back to the eyes in the video. And I think that Kyle Connor has a particular skill set and a high, like he's a good finisher in, in some very specific ways that make him fit there. Even if on paper, you might say that, well, Nick Patan could also do that. Nick Patan's more of a distributor. He has uh, different routes that he takes and he might hold on to the puck a little bit less in the middle of the ice and look for different, like his passing lanes will be different than Kyle Connors. And, and um, this is a long winded way of saying, I don't have an answer for you. And I think that there's so much con- context that, that 
you have to to look at and trial and error and there seems to be so many things they're juggling every day to, to sort of get at it um so i'll absolutely write to the effective uh, maximized and most efficient lines and, and i've done that in the past and i'll continue to do it in the future based on whatever i'm reading at the time um but i think it's still to me remains too big of a question for me to tell you what i think the exact most efficient 12 or 13 is right I think that every sport needs to stop worrying about playing not to lose and playing not that they shouldn't play defense first, but that Paul Maurice and his coaching staff should go in a training camp this year and go, fuck you to the other 31 teams. We're going to shit kick everyone this year. I don't care if it's 6-1 or if it's 6-4, and we're going to put our 12 best players out there and we're going to run full four lines and we're going to score 380 goals this year whatever the number is that's what i want to see because i've been saying before they were good that they're way better than they are and it was misuse it wasn't good line combinations it was too much chris thorburn and this sort of thing just change your mindset put a niku you know what i mean and just go out there and kick ass rather than going we got to do this and oh when colorado comes in we have to play this type of game and just go kick their ass that's just what i want because they have so much talent and they've got one or two years with this group to try and do that anyway that's just my little rant um somebody asked about nick shore i think we kind of answered that i know that's a specific example but this is a 13th forward depth forward question really and i we, we've talked about it a couple times now but if, if if you if you want to yeah i had a quick look at, at nick shore and some of uh his backstory primarily with the la kings where he's played most of his games and most of his career to this point um and what i found was that he consistently um was an excellent possession player by numbers uh but uh, remained kind of in their bottom six and seemed to be interchangeable. When you pulled him out, other players posted similar possession numbers as well. And um, LA system for a long time, like if you're looking for a team with a disproportionate Corsi sort of situation, LA would have been a great example to, to cherry pick um, that they were excellent at possession. They drove a lot of shot attempts and things like this, but they weren't quite as successful as the shot attempts would have mm -hmm. suggested. Um, and as a result, kind of in the way that I'll forever be skeptical of London Knights from the OHL who put up lots of points because of their system and the way that they give, they'll play an offensive player half of the game. From a certain era of Los Angeles Kings, I remain skeptical of players with good possession numbers. Okay. Um, and I don't know if that's rational, but that's sort of where I, where I see that. So um, I did a little bit of uh, reading uh, Jewels in the Crown or Crown in the Jewels. There's an excellent LA Kings blog that had a, an, an excellent um, analysis of it. And they couldn't find evidence for Nick Shore at that stage of his career above some of the other options that they had in LA. Um, and that's what I'd be looking for. If you're going to look for upgrades for Winnipeg right now, you, you probably want decisive wins because their top forwards, their top 12 or 13 forwards, um, are all excellent for where I, where I think that they'll play in, in the lineup. Um, you'd want a clear upgrade, and Nick Shore could be that. But my superficial look at what I've seen so far says that he's not a guarantee. And uh, to my knowledge, Winnipeg's not looking for that sort of thing. Right. So he's a good, he, he's a good underlying, probably a good underlying player, just not, it, there's no fit right now for us. 
because simply we're just too too full so a question that somebody asked was the battle of the brains who would win in a fight marat or garrett hole brains well uh, it's at a fight and you guys are maybe two of the smartest guys and we know, physically we know physically who would win yeah i've seen unless you have a black belt or something <laughs> that we don't know about yeah well garrett trains quite a bit i've seen yeah. some of his uh yeah so I, I think i'm just gonna have to take the pre-tap out in in that case um let's see what do i know Garrett and I have never met to this point. Oh, that would be awesome. We we got to make that happen. Yeah, can, can we meet? Garrett, G, when you come there, to Winnipeg, <laughs> we, we make it happen. Back and forth a, a time or two, and I I find, and he's written at the athletic too. He guessed uh, at the athletic last year as well. Uh, though, as I understand the analytics work that he does, is getting a bit too revealing, and there's some things he can't say to the public that he can say in his business. So, um, all to say, get us in a room. Uh, we'll we'll thumb wrestle it. We'll uh, give us some word problems. I'm not gonna fight the man though. Yes, I think that's a great great that's answer. That's me using my brain for my own self preservation. <laughs> it's a sud- Sudoku challenge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, mental gym uh, Olympics or something. Yeah. Uh, Saxon uh, asked a question on uh, Facebook if you had heard anything about Blake Wheeler being a good freestyler. Um, when you say freestyle, I think of like soccer tricks, but you probably mean like rapping. Yeah. yeah. I have, have you ever heard about that? Not a clue. Okay. Not aware at all. I know that he's a sneakerhead. I know he wears Air Jordans and, and he's into that, a little bit of that culture. So I wondered if there was any, any truth to that. So I wouldn't know. No, I haven't heard it. Yes or the no. Well, maybe yeah. we'll find out during the year. We'll see what happens yeah. here. Okay, so I think we touched on everybody's listener questions. I'm pretty sure. I think I'm I'm pretty happy with that actually. Um, so I did have one more. Okay, what what's your last question? The AJ? one about the value of like because I'm looking for best stats, the giveaway takeaways. Is that valuable information or or is that just sort of a essentially plus minus and it, uh, kind of and it's not as valuable as it looks. So a couple episodes ago when we had Garrett on, we talked about kind of giveaway, takeaway, um, and possession, and, and those sorts of things of P.K. Subban, uh, Eric Carlson were the two that came to mind. As players How, with lots of giveaways, but, but positive impact. Because they handle the pucks so much, right? And so their percentage of also of their giveaways and takeaways is is kind of hard to even... It's not hard to calculate, but it's different than a, than a player that doesn't handle the puck so much. AJ's wondering how important are giveaways and takeaways when they're measured to a player and how much impact does that have to the team and, and to, e- to each player, and is it a valuable stat? I think it's the sort of thing that's valuable in the sense that it would give you information about that player, but I don't think that I would ever use it to evaluate... Uh, how good in quotes or bad in quotes a player was because I can in my mind think of it just anecdotally of several different situations where a player's numbers would be uh, affected by role and and by puck possession and things like that so Carlson and Subban would be really good examples Um, if you counted up all the giveaways and say the the neutral zone or the offensive blue line of of a guy like Nick Ehlers who also leads the team in um, possessed entries for 60 minutes You'd probably find more giveaways there as well, even within the context of a line and a role um, with Winnipeg's breakout as well. Um, the, it's often wingers who are going to be making passes across the wall. Or they have a disproportionate role in terms of, uh, I think, the, the zone entry as well in, in a lot of cases. Um, so I think my personal interest in that stat would be to, to read it 
look at maybe a, a player's plus minus in terms of giveaways versus takeaways, or look at them separately, have takeaways on their own, giveaways on their own, and then sort of give it the mental test of like, how does, how does that fit with what I perceive their role to be? Um, or if you had enough data, then you could sort of zero in on certain situations like puck recoveries off the wall on a dump in, and then you'd see Matthew Perot excel in that sort of situation. Or um, if you quantified the quality of the first pass that that defender made when you were putting pressure on him, um, can you recover the puck from him and, and call that a takeaway? Can you force him to make, you know, a, a lower percentage pass? And, and if you were able to quantify that, the more data points on that that you can sort of attach to it, the more useful it becomes, in my opinion. Um, but it, at the very least, is is interesting conversational topic and something to ask more questions from. That makes sense. So I'm going to just uh, say, uh, Marat, first of all, thank you uh, for joining us. And I think thank that you. you've uh, committed to to at least being on a couple more times as we go along. And, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, which is I'm okay with in this case. Uh, <laughs> you haven't yet speak asked, it into but existence. I will. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um <laughs> One thing maybe our listeners might be familiar with, because maybe they're not subscribers to The Athletic, Marat does take the the deep dives and gets really inside. And, and like we mentioned at the beginning, we stayed really high level for, for most of this. You did reference a lot of stats and a lot of um, investigating that you've done. But I think we can in future episodes, hopefully, if we, if we are lucky enough to have you, actually take some deep dives, maybe related to articles that you've written and, and, and go deeper into stats and deeper into how you come up with things and how you research things. I think that would be really great. I think in this case, like I said, I think it was mostly high level stuff. So if you'd like to, um, your Twitter handle, how to subscribe, those sorts of things for anybody that's not following you, I'm sure everybody does. Yes. Mm -hmm. And your event, of course, any plugging you want to do plug away. Yeah. First and foremost, the, the Twitter is WPG Marat at, and you probably can't spell Marat if you've never seen it written before. So that's my at is W-P-G-M-U-R-A-T. If I can say there's nothing more frustrating on podcasts or radio or anything when somebody says, what's your, your Twitter handle? And they just say it and that's it. Thank you for <laughs> spelling it. That's the best. That's how it always should be. For sure. As a Marat, you have to speci- like specify which region you're in, just like the athletic. So it's W-P-G-M-U-R-A-T. That's me. I think I'm the only one in Winnipeg. If you're listening to this podcast and your name is Marat, write in, contact them somehow. I want to meet you. We can be friends. Um, and so, okay, so that's my that's me on Twitter. The Athletic, um, yeah, absolutely. Please subscribe. We're growing a lot, but it, it has to be sustainable. And the more coverage that we provide um, is directly tied to the amount of subscribers that we have in Winnipeg. And we've been able to grow from a collection of freelancers to more and more while throughout the playoffs I was writing as, uh, as often as I could while Pierre Lebrun was flying in and Scott Burnside were here and Michael Russo were here as well in Winnipeg during the playoff run. And that's the goal um, moving forward is, is to have that sort of full-time round-the-clock coverage as well. And we need subscribers for that. So theathletic.com. And there's always a deal of some kind. You will find one right now. I'm sure of it. I was Especially just going to say. students, we've got some new deals yeah. too. So... Um, so absolutely there. And also come meet me, come meet some of our staff at the athletic because at the pint on September 22nd, that evening, uh, we're having a subscriber appreciation night, bring your friends, bring your family, bring whoever you want. Let's come. Let's talk hockey. Let's, let's have a good night at the pint on September the 22nd. 
Right on. That's awesome. And who's going to be there? Yeah. Do you have any any announcements on any other guests other than you? Well, we know of one. This is in the... Or maybe we don't. I'm you're not gonna sure. Have to, you're going to have to stay tuned at my Twitter, at <laughs> WPGMURAT, or theathletic.com. But uh, I'll be there for sure. I promise you that much. And I have some clues, and I have some hunches as to who the other folks are going to be. And they're good people, uh, but I'm not going to tell you quite yet. All right. Well, that's that's cool. That's that's great. <laughs> and I guess the last thing is, I mentioned before, and let's just, I mean, a quick, rather than we, we everything we talked about was a season preview. What do you What do you see happening? A quick, you know, what what is what does this year look like for the team? Uh, they're an excellent team, well inside the top ten. I see them sort of in that fifth in the league range that they were prior to the Paul Stastny trade. I'm using that as a convenient point of reference, but also I think that there are enough strengths and enough question marks that we're looking at a very good team who is well within a window where they're they're going to make the playoffs and they're going to have a chance, um, but they're they're not clear of the pack. And teams like Tampa Bay, and Nashville are um, are still uh, at least as good as Winnipeg with a few less question marks. Um, and I think that's a great position for any club to be in. If Winnipeg had this roster moving forward without the salary cap issues and the Truba conundrum and, and these sorts of things as well, um, you could rest assured that there would be a cup at some point in the next several years because this team has too much talent on it. Uh, as it stands, the biggest story is going to be how well they do this year and how well they're able to maintain the talent and reload and keep uh, keep surrounding that young core with really excellent players. I think they'll finish in the top third of the league easily, and uh, they're going to be well within the fight in the, in the playoffs as well. Uh, I think that's music to any fan's ears. I think that's what we've been we've been all waiting for is this, <laughs> like literally this moment, right? Two weeks from training camp, uh, knowing that we're going to, you know, barring something ridiculous, we're going to make the playoffs, and we got another whiteout coming. I think this is, and this should be something that we do going forward. I think this is, I mean, we've been waiting for it really since 1979, honestly, to have this amount of confidence and this sort of foundation, I guess is the word I'm looking for. And I, so to hear somebody uh, like yourself confidently speak like that, I think that should make every everybody that's listening happy, in my opinion, because I think that that's... Man, that's exciting. That's awesome. <laughs> we had a piece at The Athletic from last season that uh, compared uh, with Dom Lachishan. I hope I'm spelling it, pronouncing his name correctly, but but Dom at The Athletic who does a tremendous amount of math modeling and like the articles that he has are always so detailed. The charts are gorgeous. Like These are uh, some of my favorite to read. He compared uh, Winnipeg's 2017-18 uh, season compared to the NHL in that year versus all of Winnipeg's other seasons that they've ever had. And we came away with the conclusion, we worked together on that article, that uh, it was the best season by a WHA or NHL team wow. in Winnipeg history. And I think that this one could be quite similar to that. Well, that's awesome. That's that's really interesting, too, that uh, somebody that saw the two or three good years that they had back in the 80s, <laughs> that, that saying something. I didn't see any WHA, uh, any WHA days, but... Once again, thanks so much, and uh, I think that's going to do it for this extra-large episode of Jet Centric, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.